0: To the North Group Security refined by intelligence. We're here to spotlight the best practices and critical safety and security issues in today's world and provide actionable strategies that you can implement into day to day operations from the individual to organizational level. Our goal is to improve your risk management and response capabilities. Thanks for spending time with us today. And here's your host. So, everybody, welcome to uh, the North Group's podcast. Uh, Steve Hernandez, CEO of the North Group, and I've got Chad Holt, one of our great employees here today with us. Chad, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you, sir. My pleasure.
0: So today we're going to be talking about event security in the face of COVID. Now, I'm going to let Chad kind of introduce himself. Chad, you uh, you have a great background. Um, super exciting to have you on board here at the North Group. Um, we love your charisma and your, and your energy and your ability to kind of um, bring some new understanding of this industry. Talk a little bit about where you're coming from, 17 years of experience, and what you're doing, and, and help our listeners understand kind of who you are.
1: Um, originally, I think it was a matter of club and event-related security. I moved to Las Vegas, uh, I guess it would be almost 19 years ago. I uh, started off in the casino industry with Caesar's Palace and with the Venetian and from there, it expanded into nightclubs. Uh, I got involved with a company called Pure Management Group, which owned Pure Nightclub in Las Vegas It's located inside Caesars Palace and was the number one nightclub in the world for many years in a row. Um, it expanded and, and went further on into nightlife uh, management positions into assistant director positions to director positions where we were responsible for high profile celebrities and large scale events and hotel openings and, you know, staffs of anywhere from. 30 to 40 personnel to an upwards of 150, depending on, you know, the pool situation and as things expanded and day life became as popular as nightlife, life. Uh, recently, before I ended up with the North Group, I had taken a job uh, with Live Nation as a security director, of security and compliance for the House of Blues in Las Vegas and Mandalay Bay and the foundation room in Mandalay Bay. And that kind of it expanded from there with the portfolio, uh, the clubs and theaters division that had. 80-plus venues and growing that we did training for and evacuation training for and risk management for and surveillance for and things like that. So it's a it's been a collective growth over the last, you know, 17 to 20 years that have expanded into a few different things from executive protection to corporate security to risk management uh, to threat assessment to counterterrorism, you know, videos and seminars for run, hide, fight and, and multiple other things through Homeland Security that we had had set up. So it's been... It's been a very large learning experience over time, but it's it's made it very well rounded when it comes to things that we do for the North Group, for example.
0: Yeah. Now, um, you coming from Las Vegas, you were you were out there um, during during the beginning of COVID. What what was that like?
1: Uh, surreal, really. Um, it's kind of funny because I remember there were so many of, of the friends and coworkers and colleagues that would go through and and show recordings of guys riding a longboard skateboard down the sidewalk on Las Vegas Boulevard at 10 p.m. because there were just there was no foot traffic no pedestrian traffic at all which if you've ever been to Las Vegas you know that the busiest intersection in the world is the corner of Las Vegas Boulevard and Tropicana Avenue uh, as far as foot traffic and uh, and vehicle traffic so to, to be able to ride a skateboard down the sidewalk at 9.30 9.30 or 10 p.m. on Las Vegas Boulevard, especially on a weekend, is is unheard of. It's just there's always, that city's always been about buzz and entertainment and shows, concerts, you know, such a such a large entertainment value for almost anything in that city and every single casino that's up and down the Strip and to see it, um, you know, so shut down. The only thing that would have been weirder about it is if they'd have turned off all the lights. They kept all the neon on so it still looked like Las Vegas Boulevard, but definitely didn't feel like it
0: yeah it's crazy i mean I've, I've been to vegas quite a bit in the last couple of years and and it's it's just it's wild to think about you know being on the strip and and there just being nothing going on um so yeah that's that's insane now you know in in the world of covid what changes were you seeing in event security due to the virus and 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 the fear of the virus so i think there's you know, there's two, there's two answers I'm looking for, right? There's the virus answer, but then there's the fear of the virus. And I think those are two different effects.
1: Um, I think in the beginning, everybody, like everybody, every business, they were heavily reliant on the idea of a vaccine and following government direction for, you know, stay at home, self-quarantine, wear a mask, flatten the curve. A lot of the adage that, that everybody went on in the beginning. The only difference in something like that is because you have such a large group of people on the city, like in the city, on the street, in the casinos, sitting at tables, packed into shows. You know, the, to conceptualize social distancing, social social distancing in in a place in a city like Las Vegas is, to me, I, I don't know how somebody could sit down and actually have a conversation about how you you execute that and still drive any revenue. I think the security aspects that change collectively are now that, you know, security is always, you know, the bad guy in most situations, especially in Las Vegas, because so many people are are always going to tell you, yes, VIP hosts, casino hosts, front desk people. If you're spending money and you're there and you're a player, you're going to get whatever you want. You're not accustomed to being told no, but security is always going to be that person that has to tell you no. So the challenges and the changes that come in with it are how do you implement safety security, sanitation, and keep a customer service element in a department, in a group that's already struggling with that when they have to be the guy that tells you no to begin with. You know, it, it's just, it, it's it's so many more layers now that that become a challenge for the industry and the individual security personnel. When you're that security agent that has to walk over and speak to, to anybody not knowing who they are, not knowing if they're a player, you don't know their they're play level, you know, they could be noir players for MGM, which means they spend millions of dollars a year in gaming. And you would never know that. And you're going to walk over and tell them that they can't sit in a certain place or talk in a certain way or have to put a mask on. And, you know, that's that's just – people are not accustomed to that.
0: Now, you know, I mean, just just my mind, right, from the entrepreneur standpoint, stepping away from security for a second, do you think that there is a capitalization, right? There's got to be more cleaning to these – To these facilities there's got to be more you know more security um there's got to be more you know if if we are going to have a club there has to be consideration for how many people Um, you know which means longer lines which means less patrons or more you know uh pissed off patrons how do how's the industry combating that in las vegas for example
1: currently the answer currently the answer is there's no answer it's uh they shut down, you know, when we, when we wrapped up everything, I think when I got, when I got furloughed, it was April of this year, by mid May, uh, it had come to a point where, you know, like hourly employees were getting laid off because we weren't open for business due to the shutdown. Everybody knew it was coming. We had word from the governor's office out there that these shutdowns were going to happen. We had spoken to the president of the hotel at the time who had given us a head ups, heads up. So we were preparing as we went. But at the same time, the managers, the executive level team, were still left on until the middle of May. And then middle of May, they furloughed all of us. And it it was kind of up in the air. We knew right away that the probability of going back to business as usual and conducting shows, having nightlife, any of those normal revenue drivers that, you know, a house of blues or a foundation room or casino would have were not plausible till 2021. And that, that day in 2021 was still TBD. But we knew we knew in May that we weren't going to see consistent regular work in entertainment for at least for at least until 2021.
0: That's crazy. That's just insane, man, to to think that this uh, this pandemic, what it's done to not just not just our industry. Right. But, you know, the entertainer, the 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 um, you know, the, the guy that relies on working the bar on the weekends, Um and it's just, it's wild. What security measures minimize public exposure to COVID during the planning for an event?
1: Well, I think when they get to that place, you know, there have been some things thrown around here recently that you've heard some statements being made by various companies about what their expectations are going to be. Um, you know, 72-hour window for testing. You have to show negative, you know, and have a ticket to be able to enter a show, Uh, proof of inoculation if, you know, if people choose to do the vaccine and they find something that they want to issue to the public and being able to carry, whether that's something that's on an app on your phone or some sort of document that they give you. But I think regardless of of which way those play out, whether you take the test and you're negative, whether you have the vaccine and and you can prove it and it lasts for however long it lasts, or, you know, if it's reoccurring like the flu shot, who knows, but the big steps and the big changes are going to come from that security personnel that's got to staff and monitor, you know, those temperature checks like you see in so many businesses right now where people go through um, at the same time too. those temperature checks, those sanitation effects, you know, you rubber gloves, wearing masks, you know, it comes down to PPE for the security staff. And then it also comes down to what you're doing on ingress, you know, ingress and egress are going to be a huge issue simply for the fact that that's going to be the time when, you have social distancing it's most directly impacted because you have everybody in line to try to get into a venue and then everybody leaving the venue at the same time. So even if you space everything out correctly inside, you're still going to run into that bottleneck in and out. And it'll be interesting to see how they, how they determine and how they relate that to social distancing when the time comes, even if people are testing prior to shows and inoculations given. It'll be interesting to see what, what they come up with conceptually for it.
0: Now as a professional security practitioner, um, you know, you've worked everything from executive protection to venues to A-list folks to executive folks. What are some challenges as a as a leader in the industry um, for safety and sanitation procedures that you see for security practitioners and personnel?
1: Uh, for me, I would think the first thing that jumps out in my head is the the, the force like the forced idea of doing it. I mean, when you look at you look at the world today and there's such a debate over masks and do they work and I'm gonna wear it or I'm not gonna wear it or it's I have the right, I can make my own choice, I can do my own thing, and then where the minutia of legality comes in. As a security personnel standing at the front door of a venue that holds Thirty thousand people, and you're going to be the first one to roll the dice and sell out a show because somebody's going to have to take the step. Somebody's going to have to be the one that jumps off the cliff and says, "Okay, we feel like we've done enough procedurally to get to a place where we can fill an arena that holds thirty thousand people." And these are the things that the steps we're taking and what we're doing. You're still going to have that moment, that certain percentage that are they're not going to want to wear the mask. You know, they're they're not going to want to sanitize correctly. They're not going to want to have. To deal with gloves or proof of inoculation or a proof of testing, and there, there's always going to be that that rub where people are going to push back, um, especially because the the authority of security personnel is is so dumbed down. You know that the credit is never given where it's due. I think by some businesses where they should give the ability to let security enforce and be an authority and and try to carry out the expectations of the company because that's what you're telling the public you're going to do. But at the same time, too, you're still a slave to things like TripAdvisor and Yelp and Repetology and, you know, all the things that on the back end that corporate people like yourself are are going to get beat over the head with because that's ultimately what drives your star ratings and what your Google factor is and, and all the other things that come along with it, man. It's the biggest challenge for security will first and foremost be how can you enforce these rules that your company is telling the public, especially companies that are Fortune 500, that are publicly traded, that have shareholders. What are you, how can you enforce these things or how can you enact these things that you're promising you're going to do? And what happens if something slips through the cracks and somebody gets sick and it translates into some sort of lawsuit? I, I, there's, there's there's a lot more to sort out than I think people give credit for.
0: Yeah, and I think shareholder liability, right? Um, you know, if, if a board of directors a board of shareholders is sitting in a boardroom talking about, you know, marginal differences from 2020 or 2021 to 2019 and 2018. Uh, I think they're going to, they're going to have to figure some things out as far as how do I keep profitability and, and, and marginal, you know, not create such a marginal difference that, that it hurts that stakeholder and creates liability. Now, you know, in, in, in reference to events and event-based security, you know, the COVID has completely changed how we, how we view events and in, in our industry and everything, but what does the future look like in, in your professional opinion? Not that you're a, you're a scientist or molecular biologist, or, or you're analyzing this virus, but from a, from a practitioner standpoint, um, and the things that you lived through, one of which we're going to talk about the Las Vegas shooting here in a minute, but the things you lived through, how, what does the future look like in your opinion?
1: I think if you're going to execute these things at a, at a large scale venue level from anything that can be, you know, like the house of blues that's in Las Vegas, it's 2000 people for a cap, you know, to any large stadium that you're going to deal with, you know, that's 30, 40,000 people. They've got a Legion stadium now in Las Vegas with the Raiders haven't come to the city, you know, 75 plus thousand people. So you're talking massive, massive large scale events. You're talking world cup size events. If, if you're going to be able to do that, then there has to be a, a much larger curve for the quality of security personnel, their backgrounds, their experiences, you know, their pay rate. Like at some point or another, you're going to have to antiquate the worth of the person versus the job that you're tasking them to do. And that's going to come into a lot of difference because you have to be patient. You have to have customer service. You have to talk because people are still paying for the experience. They still want their first concert. They still want to see their first live show. They still want to see David Copperfield. They still want to go to their first football game. All these things for so many people are now and forever going to be somebody's first. And we used to call it in the industry the 70% rule was the, the term I used for it. And I used to teach all the guys when we worked in clubs and shows that 70% of a guest experience is going to be touched on by security. From the minute you walk in, checking a ticket, scanning the ticket, checking an ID, going through security wanding, bag search, all the other necessary security steps that the city had taken into, we all know like how many times you're going to ask for the bathroom or where's the bar or can you help me to my seat or do you know what time the show starts? There, there's a million questions that get asked in every single show, every single game, every single performance, and the truth is, is to be able to still be that person and stay patient with that type of redundancy that you'll see day in and day out, and then now to have to implement all these COVID safety features, it's your screening process for how you hire, the way you hire, and the quality in which you hire. And training are, are going to be fundamental for future success. So I think you bring up
0: a really valid point before we move on from this is, is that COVID is going to very much drive that customer experience and that interaction is going to depend on how security is trained um, to not overreact or underreact but just just to have that right that right niche of reaction to where the customer feels safe, Um, There's gratitude and appreciation there because, I mean, what we've seen in the last six months in the industry is, you know, patrons assaulting security guards, security guards, assaulting patrons, you know, uh, both parties being charged in in incidences that were maybe, maybe uh, led to, to be there due to lack of direction by the security provider. How do you, how do you think that training should be conducted going forward for these large venues and the, and these folks that are looking to make sure they maintain that customer experience?
1: Well, you know, there, there are two sides to every security equation when you go on, because when we talk about things like this, we would love to entertain the idea that everyone's grateful and everyone's compliant and everybody understands and everybody knows what you're doing and why you're there because in a perfect world, that would make this so much easier. But we also think about the problem, like the problematic situations of people in a venue you take, let's just take, you know, bar on the, in the street, you know, bar downtown, you know, in whatever your local area may be and your security and you're working there and you've got an occupancy set forth by the state, you know, 25% occupancy, 50% occupancy. Well, in my experience in 20 something years, it's, you don't have to have a packed house to have a person that's an undesirable at some point or another, once they drink too much, or they've had a bad day or, whatever else is going on. So that moment where you cross the undesirable behavior of a person that's had too much to drink, whether it's being belligerent, obnoxious, they're getting sick, they're throwing up, they're just being generally disruptive. And you you cloud that now with the one person standing over here that was willing to come to the show because you promised we were going to be safe and you promised all these people were going to be checked a certain way. And you promised all these people were going to meet these guidelines and Now this guy's in the bathroom, throwing up, making a mess in a shared space that's already a contaminated issue as it is anyway. So your training aspect now becomes not only do you have to mitigate people and the complaints that you're going to get, but at the same time too, when those complaints arise and the natural behavior from any show, any bar, any club, like shows itself and it always will no matter how many people, whether it's fights. I mean, ask yourself that question. If you're supposed to show, if you're supposed to social distance, and that's what you guarantee, and you as a customer come in my club, and you're having drinks and you're doing your thing, and you get into an issue with another guest, and I have to come over and physically remove you, how do I respect social distancing? How do I not put my hands on you? How do I not get within six feet of you if I have to physically escort you out of a building? So by by nature, I am now defaulting on the things I promised you—you you were safe from coming into the building like everybody's going to be six feet apart. Nobody's going to breathe in your face. Don't worry about it. Everybody will wear a mask and my mask gets torn off in the fight. Well, I'm not masked anymore and now I'm touching you. I'm within six feet and I'm escorting you out. And it's probably not just me. It's probably me and several other people. So what now becomes the liability as a business. And it's that training piece is always tough when you talk about hands-on experience from security in any venue, but with COVID it's, it's an exercise in patience, and the customer service element has to be taught correctly. I think you just came up with the most brilliant idea
0: I've ever heard, social distancing subject control.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, I, it's it's great in theory, but I mean, unless you're, you know, one of those Jedi mind-tricking guys where you can just talk people out of a venue without touching them, which... I've seen them, they're out there, but it's, it's, that's a tough moment. I don't know how people do it. it sounds like fun run. There's
0: nothing fun about it. Uh, right. So yeah, that's, that's crazy, man. I think COVID is, COVID's, I'm going to, I'm going to transition now because something I'm really excited to hear about and I'd love our listeners to hear about because you have, you have a very unique um, and sad experience in your in your, uh, in your resume. And, and that was October 1st of 2017. You, you happen to be, um, in the venue where Stephen Paddock opened up fire, um, on the, uh, on the festival down below on that, on that night. And I'd love, I'd love for you to kind of talk about that and not, not just from your personal experience, but as a, as a, as a leader, as a practitioner there that night, um, with several people underneath you, um, kind of, kind of tell us about that. What do you remember most from that
1: night? Oh, wow. What do I remember most? Uh, I guess in hindsight, you start to remember, you know, there's kind of the rule of thumb in any traumatic event. You're supposed to give people a couple of days to kind of process and decompress before they start to recall things. Um, I, I know I didn't give it a whole lot of thought in the first 48 or 72 hours. After it was over, uh, the experience was 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 very surreal. But I think what I remember most is how your mind switches gears right away. You learn very quickly the type of person you are, and I don't mean that from you know hard or soft or tough or not. It just the disciplines that you put in your head from a security standpoint. Being a security practitioner and somebody that's done it for a long time and trained it for a long time. Do you believe in what you train? Do you believe that your training practices and principles work? Are you truly committed to those things or is it just lip service? And you will find out very quickly whether or not you believe in what you train when the moment comes that you have to enact it with a certain level of uncertainty of what's going to happen next. I think uh, the team that night, you know, the the guys that were with me, the staff that was up there, we had uh, a little over 30 employees in the building at the time. And I think it was 96 guests at the time. And it was a Sunday night, obviously. And the festival, the Route 91 Harvest Festival was going on across the street. Um, every night we had a partnership in the foundation room with the local country radio station, uh, the Coyote radio station.
0: Yeah, kind of, kind of touch on that, right? So you're, how many floors above Steven Paddock were you and, and was the, uh, the club that you were
1: in? Five five floors above where the suite was. Now he was on a corner. Obviously, everybody's seen the pictures and you've seen the video and and the news stuff. So he's on the corner, which would have been the northeast corner of the tower. Um, on the Mandalay Bay is on the west side of the boulevard. Uh, the convention area, concert area is on the east side. Uh, I'd say somewhere between maybe quarter of a mile in walking distance from the front door of Mandalay Bay to when you're at the parking lot area uh, where the, where the concert was being held. So a very clear vantage point Uh, foundation room is on the top floor and not actually just top floor. It is the top floor of Mandalay Bay. Uh, It's not accessible from a room standpoint. So when I say it's on the floor, I don't mean like go to the third floor of the shopping mall and go to XYZ store. It's the elevator comes out and the only thing that's there is foundation room. It opens up into it. Um, Fire exits on either end. So Mandalay Bay, if you look at it from aerial view, it's, it's three pronged. It looks, you know, like a three points meeting in the middle kind of thing. So you have three towers respectively as it's structured. And he would, would, he would have been on what's the Northeast corner in the suite five floors below where we were. So when you're standing on our patio, you're directly looking down from the roof of Mandalay Bay. Onto where the concert was taking place, so, so we we would have had the same vantage point he did. Only he was five floors lower than we were.
0: So shots so shots ring out. He's uh, he's a little recessed into the window. Mm-hmm. Um, was that correct?
1: That's my understanding. I mean, you know, it the information that was shared the night of, you know, was minimal. Obviously, because there were a lot of things that were factors. Uh, the biggest part of it, you know, and to the earlier question with things that remembered, you know, now again, like I remember, I remember now as we talk about it, there were so many, you know, so many people had downloaded, you know, police scanner apps onto their phone because that was the only way people could hear things in what was somewhat real time, you know, so as people are listening to the scanners on their phone and the apps on their phone and trying to get information from different people, you know, text messaging and phone calls to family members and friends who are watching the news and trying to get updates that way. The one thing that, you know, was really striking for everybody is because as people fled the scene where people, you know, with the shots coming down onto the festival grounds, as people ran in different directions and ran into casinos across the street, you have Luxor directly across the street, Excalibur directly across the street. You have north of that lot is the Tropicana Hotel and just on the other side of the street in the breezeway is MGM Grand. So that and what we talked about and referenced earlier the busiest intersection in the world, as far as foot traffic and, and, and vehicle traffic, is where these people are running to. And it's that, that corner is surrounded on all four sides by a major casino. So they run in and they're screaming, shots fired, shots fired, shots fired, or they're shooting, they're shooting, they're shooting. And of course, people that are in there that have no idea what's going on because they're in the casino minding their own business, gaming, drinking, whatever they're doing, they immediately assume right away that it's in the building they're in because people are running into the building screaming they're shooting. So now you have calls from the Tropicana, calls from the Luxor, calls from MGM of shots fired. So now Metro and the police departments and emergency services are dispersing to try to respond to all these calls. Because to us up there and to them, I'm sure in the same regard, sounds like a multi prong attack. It sounds like, you know, this is the one thing that we've done to draw a lot of attention to one place. And now once all your resources get there, we're going to have all these little small cell things that are happening at the same time to maximize casualty. Yeah and that was that was really scary.
0: Yeah, which has been the greatest single concern in counterterrorism in North America that we were going to see a Mumbai style multi multi gunman multi strategy attack. You know, it's been it's been something that's been a concern in the industry and in law enforcement uh in the CT community. You know, there's been a lot of back in the days of al-Qaeda when when they were hanging around trying to blow the US up, we were we were hearing a lot of theories about multi multi-faceted attacks and things like that now shots ring out you guys go to the balcony and you guys are going to investigate
1: yeah there was a actually one of the gentlemen that was working for me at the time a former Marine uh, his name was Justin and he actually had been an artillery instructor you know in the Marine Corps and he was the one that initially heard it and he called over the radio to me that there were shots fired and, and I was thinking like on the news or like, what do you like? What's the next part of the story? You know, because at this point, there's no reaction in the venue. Like you're inside, music's playing, people are drinking. You can't hear gunshots from across the street and, you know, 30, 40 stories below where you're at. So it's not like we could hear it. And it just so happened he had been on the patio, come inside, made the call to me. I started walking in his direction to kind of figure out what he was talking about. And he was like, no man outside. So we walk out onto the patio. And at this point, guests are starting to realize what's happening or at least getting some sort of foothold in what's happening. He's explaining what's going on and what he heard and what he saw and we're looking down and, and honestly, the echo, the percussion from the gunshots seems so far away. Initially, we were looking at ground level for muzzle flash because we thought somebody had gotten into the festival with guns and they were fish in a barrel like on the ground level kind of thing. That's because it, it seems so far away. And then as we were having the conversation and, and trying to get an idea of what was going on and kind of get our minds around it and we're looking around, then you heard 308 rounds that were, <laughs> that were what seemed to be right next to you, like almost, almost close enough to where your ears would ring from it. And that is when we're like, oh, you know, oh, shit, like it's, it's, it's here, it's right below us because they were, you know, shooter at Mandalay Bay hadn't been broadcast yet at that point. It was just about the festival because they were still trying to narrow the location of the shooter. So are so, you
0: broadcasting at that point? Are you guys putting it over the net?
1: We are not at the time. You know, we, we immediately concerned ourselves with, you know, m- media covering it, obviously, as soon as people get wind of things, because you know how viral social media things can be almost instantly and how much they're monitored. So police traffic, the shots happen, 911 calls. You know, people are filming and and it's Facebook living and Instagram living and Snapchat living and whatever other living people can do. And so all this stuff people are seeing in real time, you know, within a few seconds delay of what's happening. So it doesn't take long. And that's one of the I think one of the advantages, you know, in, in situations like that is that people that are there in the moment that think well enough to to pull out a phone and try to start to stream something can probably get valuable information for authorities down the road as investigations happen for those, those real-time first few seconds. And I believe that was an advantage for their response time, um, especially considering there were so many follow-up calls for shots fired, as I explained earlier, in different places. And they were trying to decide where they needed to go and what they needed to do. But for us, you know, there are three fire exits in Foundation Room, um, one on each prong of the towers I mentioned earlier. At that time, knowing that the shooter was in the building was not enough not knowing exactly where he, uh, where he was was the issue. So as the as director of security at that time with 120 plus, 130 bodies in the building, including my wife and including my nephew and some of my good friends that I'd worked with for 15 years, the decision became we have to go down one of these fire exits. But A, he's shooting down onto the street and all three of these fire exits will dump out into the line of fire. We will directly be in the parking lot, shipping and receiving area, main valet area of Mandalay Bay, regardless of which one of these three exits that we take. And two, and more importantly, if we choose wrong, are we going to walk through a stairwell that's going to be right outside the door and ultimately would have been right outside the door once you found out where he was of where this guy's got his, his home base set up and, and the shooting's coming from. So it became our decision at the time that we would barricade We put guys on the exterior doors so we could watch across the roof for any fire, any fire door that came open looked like somebody was coming up the steps because that was the secondary concern is if he goes up as opposed to go down or does he sit? We like, we really didn't know. And we thought we'll just barricade ourselves in because right now there's only one direction he can come from. And that's from beneath us because there's, there's no coming from the top because we're on the roof. Yeah. So that was, that was the plan to barricade in and try to keep people safe and, gather as much information as we could so we could tell people what was going on as we found out. Now
0: hindsight, what did you learn about the current state of security, you know, being there real time in the middle of it?
1: Practical application of your training is is absolutely necessary. If you have the ability, the money, the resources to start structuring demonstration, real-time demonstration, similar to what people would do with a fire evacuation. You know, you bring your staff in, and this is any business in the world, and, I mean, this is nothing wrong with the, the idea behind it, but you bring any business in the world. I mean, we did it ourselves, 30, 40, 80, 100 staff members into a building, and we walk through fire evacuation drills. Great. Only problem with that is, is that there are factors that are not in play. The factors that are in play in that particular time are imminent threat of death, adrenaline, mass amounts of hysteria and crowd and the uncontrollable intangible factor of a crowd in and of itself. You know, they teach you when you're doing evacuation drills that you have to use simple, loud verbal commands to get people's attention because as their heart rate goes up and the more adrenaline that's released into their body, their comprehension level starts to decrease as their heart rate goes up. So they teach you, you know, small things like exit, exit, safety, safety, you know, things that people will identify with in one word context so that they'll follow direction and be able to get out of the building. And you're going to have people that completely ignore it and run in a million different directions, and this is no different. In an active shooter scenario, in an evacuation scenario, real-time practical training is the only way that you're going to have a chance to be able to, to, to kind of see what it's like when these situations arise, if they arise, like wherever you work or wherever you are.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I will say that, you know, train like you fight, right? Just a, just an incredible experience. Now, what do you think security did best that night? And not just you guys up on on that floor, but I mean, venue security, surrounding security, event security, um, for the festival. I mean, well, I mean, you being a leader in the in the community down there at the time. What do you? What's your analysis there of what it security
1: do best and and what do they do worst? I mean. Well, I think, uh, you know, starting, starting with, with best for sure. And there's a multitude of things, but communication, I think was absolutely the first and foremost thing that one gave everybody an idea of what was going on Um, Two, the scale and scope and magnitude of what we were collectively dealing with where it actually was because we saw the the, the risk and the multiple reports of shots fired in multiple places and how it dispersed our emergency services teams um, and what kind of, you know, chaos that can cause in and of itself. Because, I mean, you know, whether than anybody, if you're sitting at MGM minding your own business playing slot machines and SWAT comes running in because there's a shots fire called, like that's pretty much going to create even more of a panic than you would have had to begin with anyway. Yeah. So I would say – communication was the best thing that was done given that we didn't have access to what was going on with Metro scanners. We didn't have a direct line to what was going on with Metro and the steps they were taking, but Mandalay Bay as a hotel did excellent as far as their security team and what they communicated to us, what we were able to communicate back to them and where we were, what we were doing, how many people. And even when SWAT came into the building, you know, they, when they came into foundation room and they breached the door to come in, they were very clear about who they were and what they were doing. And we followed those, those, those orders and we did exactly what they asked us to do. But at the same time, I remember clear enough to where I remember asking one of the SWAT personnel if they could unjam our microphone system because I had managers and staff members that were barricaded into offices in the back that were listening to the radio when SWAT came in. And it was not made clear over the radio that it was SWAT that was coming in. It was just verbalized as they're coming through the front door. And, of course, in that moment, we had no idea what that meant. So as they're coming through the door, we, ID, we realize that it's SWAT. They ID themselves. Everybody goes through the motions and does what they're supposed to do. But they were nice enough, to, once I told them who I was and what my responsibilities were, to unjam my comms so I could go over the radio and tell everybody that it's SWAT that's in the building. They're coming to clear. Open the office doors. Because, you know, we've done this training. Run, hide, fight. Run, hide, fight. Run, hide, fight. Well, I got a bunch of people barricading in office, 60 floors off the ground There's no there's no run and there's there's hide. And if they kick the door open, the last thing I want is is somebody to get injured, especially fatally injured, thinking that the person kicking open the door is, you know, there to do bodily harm. And it's actually just a a law enforcement agent there, you know, trying to protect people. So they were nice enough to unjam my comms so I could tell everybody, everybody came out of the offices. We got reorganized and thankfully nobody got hurt.
0: Now, shots fired, time to law enforcement contact. What was that gap
1: there? it it seemed very you know that in that trauma moment everybody says seems you know things seconds seem like minutes if you look at it on paper you know and reading things you know after the fact they say it was 9 minutes is what the estimated time was before the first shot was fired and law enforcement arrived on scene whether it was in the hotel or at the festival itself it didn't seem that long looking at it in real time um it seemed I would say maybe three, three and a half minutes before you could see Metro, you know, running code call, lights and sirens coming down Las Vegas Boulevard and from all directions, you know, collapsing on the festival ground. That's the way it seemed watching it. And that's because all that attention's there and all those people are down there and all the all the police officers and EMTs are there. So at this time, we're still looking down there trying to determine what's going on because it was just it was just not clear that the shots were coming from inside the building from our vantage point because it was directly below us and not something we could see. How quick do you think it was
0: from the time you guys noticed shots fired to the time the SWAT team breached your guys' – your doors?
1: 25 minutes. It's a long time. Yeah. Uh, it's a long time, you know, obviously because there are a lot of factors for them, and that's not me saying anything negative against their response time. It's, like I said, multiple calls for shots fired in multiple, in multiple venues. No, I um,
0: – Yeah, I'll, I'll flat out say I, I think Las Vegas Metro, SWAT, I think Las Vegas, you know, the county PD, you know, Clark County, they, they, they've got a great SWAT team. They, they train with really you. There. There's some solid um, operators out there uh, and law enforcement folks. But that's a long time, man. That's a, 25 minutes is a long time.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you got to remember too, this is, this is, they have to take their personal safety into account. So this is multiple response, multi-pronged response structure. This is getting into the hotel, maneuvering from wherever they entered the property into the building itself, clearing, clearing a lobby, getting into an elevator and floor by floor working yourself starting at the top, but clearing your elevator bays, dropping off officers as they go to get to us and then come in and clear foundation room and make sure it's good to go before they go down to the 63rd floor and start working their way down, sweeping every room, every floor and doing an evacuation process for this entire building. that has thousands of people in it. I mean, it 25 minutes seems like a long time, but that's a lot of stuff to do in 25 minutes. The compost, the security guard, right? Was that his name? Compost.
0: If I remember correctly. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. So, So he, he makes, he notifies, I think, was it within six or seven minutes of where the shooting was coming from something Mm -hmm. like, and he ends up catching around in the leg. Yep. Um, Sounded like Paddock opened the door, fired outside the door. You guys weren't on the same channel though, were you?
1: No, we, uh, we operated independently. There was a, which led to one of one of the safety changes, you know, ironically, but at that time, we had our own radio comm system for house of blues and the foundation room and our maintenance and facilities. It's, we were a partner with Mandalay Bay. It was built in when the hotel was built. So there's a 50 50 partnership between the house of blues, you know, live nation as the umbrella company and what was going on with MGM in Mandalay Bay. So unlike every other vendor in the building, We didn't get issued Mandalay Bay employment cards. We didn't get Mandalay Bay ID cards. We didn't go through Mandalay Bay or MGM's HR department. Like all of that stuff was internalized. And we had to submit our policies and procedures to MDM corporate security for their approval. But all of those things were done in-house. And our comms and our surveillance are exactly the same way. So when all these things started to develop over time, it was me they brought in for what we did for FCC licensing and what was communicated over the radios. pictures that the helicopters were taken off the top floor for the guys that we had posted outside as overwatch to make sure nobody came through the fire exits on the roof and came toward the club because of course it's all fire doors, right? So they opened from the inside out. So there's no way for me to barricade myself in the building. So I have to put somebody on the outside of the door. And then same thing with surveillance, any camera footage we had placement, anything that was acceptable that they thought was usable, you know, they had access to all those things. So, um, we weren't on the same channel, but it ultimately the results of that night led into a revamping of the entire comm system for the hotel, which included them going to a new radio, a new program with the same company. We bought in the exact same place, exact same radio, and there was a universal channel added that could be switched over to by either department that would put us in direct conversation with Mandalay based dispatch.
0: So post-incident analysis, a lot of changes happened. Um... Small, small and large to, you know, incident response, incident command, operational, you know, uh, efficiencies, if you will. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yes. Um, you know, small steps. And I mean, in, in hindsight, people always like to point the finger of, well, why weren't they already doing this? Or why wasn't this already taking place? Well, you got to remember from a club standpoint, you know, wanding and bag searching and things like that from an event security standpoint had been in place for quite some time. You know, you have nightclubs that have, you know, walk through magnetometers at the front door. You've got guys with wands, bag searches, you know, search sticks, flashlights. All this stuff was already in play. This didn't happen in a public space. This happened because a guy that spent a lot of money that had a very large line of credit was able to procure two suites on a very busy weekend because the Harvest Festival is is a very busy weekend, especially for Mandalay Bay because of the partnership, as I said earlier, with the radio station. You've got every one of these performers, when they walk off the stage, they're going back to their trailer, get cleaned up a little bit. They're coming across the street to Mandalay Bay, up the elevator foundation room, and they're hanging out. So we're, um, we're packed in there. 800 people, elbow to elbow, because this is a true chance where people are going to get to come and take pictures, get autographs, photos, or whatever it may be, of these major country music. So, I mean, Jason Aldean, who was country music artist of the year, three years in a row, was on stage when this whole process happened and on his way over once the show was over. So we're not talking normal B list country music entertainers. We're talking Tim McGraw's and Jason Aldean's and Joe Nichols and guys that are major, major country stars and Florida Georgia line. It's all these things were there and none of it happened in that building. We didn't have that issue. We didn't have it in the venue, but this is a very busy weekend and a very large crowd and a very busy hotel. But, it's that same old adage, you know, if you spend enough money, you can get whatever you want. That's the way Las Vegas is structured
0: to yeah. a degree. So following the release of information surrounding, surrounding how it all happened, what long-term preventative measures did, you know, the
1: industry take? Well, because of the nature of, of you know, of it being in a suite, the largest change that you saw for everyone was on the hotel side. You know, me not working for the hotel, it's hard to elaborate on everything that Mandalay Bay changed procedurally uh, because I wasn't there. I can tell you what I physically saw. And that went to the first time when you started talking about ID checks similar to what they would do New Year's Eve, checking for room keys, checking IDs, verifying guests in the building and why they're in the building up into a certain time. You know, the Palms had done it for years and years and years to try to keep a, a certain element out of their hotel, but physically posting security personnel at every entrance to the building to check room keys and IDs on those people when they're walking in. You know, the metal detectors and the wanding and, and the magnetometers were already in play for a lot of the venues, Light Nightclub, which is also in Mandalay Bay, House of Blues, the Foundation Room, all those things were already in place. so those things stayed as was. But in the back of the house is really where you saw a tremendous amount of change. A lot of security personnel posted, checkpoints set up walking paths that were monitored clear bags for all employees so all things coming in and out can be seen restricted access to any service elevators unless escorted by security personnel there was a lot of infrastructure change for what was allowed in the back of the house because of what once it was discovered how steven paddock was able to get all that stuff up to that room and the way he was able to do it
0: yeah that's
1: that's that's one which is point. more of my and still now to this day it you would think that something like that because you, you see very clearly signs in almost every business everywhere in the world, employees only, not for public use. I mean, you see it on bathrooms, you know, <laughs> but still you get to this moment where, like I said, you, you're a certain person and it can be a celebrity element. It can be a financial element. It can be a player element. It can be any one of those deciding factors that determines your, your value to any business but at the same time too, how high a profile a person you are because high profile to me and you walking down the street, seeing some major a-list celebrity, we know right away. Oh my God, that's who that guy is. Holy, you know, that's Leonardo DiCaprio or whoever it is you see, because you see that kind of stuff in Vegas, you know, but at the same time too, from a casino standpoint, there's that guy that's walking through that. None of us know who it is, but every single one of those casino hosts knows who it is. Every single one of those front desk people know who it is. Every single one of those dealers knows who it is because He may not be a celebrity. He may not be on TV. He may not be singing songs or putting out albums or doing podcasts or all the crazy things that people do, but he's doing something because all those people know who he is because he's, he's, he's doing something to get their attention. And if, if you have enough, if you have enough stroke, you can cut corners. And I think that's where that, that little, that last little seventies, sixties, seventies element of Las Vegas that. You know that got heralded so much. You know what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I mean, this this incident alone, man, like the city's going away from the slogan, and it's it's such a it's it's such a hypocrisy because there's so many things to get in trouble for in Las Vegas, and people don't think about it, and their mind's always blown when they get in trouble doing anything in Las Vegas. But it's Vegas, it's Vegas, it's Vegas. Yeah, and there's a lot of money here and a lot of regulatory agencies. And a lot of people with a lot to lose if they allow for certain stupid behaviors. And here's a perfect example of it. So that last, that last little window of Vegas cool guy may be gone now because of, because of things like this, you just can't risk it anymore.
0: Do you think that from a behavioral analysis standpoint, you know, things are, do you think, I guess the best way to say this, do you think behavioral analysis has a place in these event venues? And in Las Vegas, in these large occupied spaces where there's, you know, thousands and thousands of folks with foot traffic daily, um, how does behavioral analysis, how would behavioral analysis training from, you know, experts within the intelligence community or the FBI or the, the national security community, how would that play for folks like you working in these venues?
1: Um, I, I think it's incredibly relevant. And I think any time you, anytime you take the intangible factor of a large group of people, which is naturally by nature unpredictable, every individual in that crowd is unpredictable, and then the crowd itself is a living thing. And if you work event security when you're talking about 25,000 people in the middle of a festival in a mosh pit, which is the most chaotic thing you'll ever look at in your entire life, trying to trying to break down behavior analysis in the middle of a wall of death style mosh pit is, <laughs> I, I can't imagine that there's any algorithm in the world that would allow that process to be effective, but oh, we do use, we have used to teach, or we, I should say we used to teach and have taught from a behavior analysis standpoint. When people walk in that behavioral codes, you know, the, those small nuances that you see, and there's a ton of information on the benefits to these things on DHSs you know on, on their website and things that you can look at to where how behavioral analysis translates into effective and preventative security because this is, this is where we are in the world right now in 2020. after these massive things that have happened, after Ariana Grande, after Pulse nightclub, after Las Vegas, after these major incidents where people uh, you know have passed away and, and you've got major loss of life that people are dealing with, We are now in a place, security across the board, and any business that doesn't do it will be behind the curve when the industry changes permanently. If you are not preventative security at this point, if you are not taking steps to mitigate your liability by being situationally prepared for the intangibles, then you will at some point or another get burnt. Because the days of it doesn't happen here, it won't happen to us. Yeah, if you haven't learned anything in the last four years, especially now with COVID, And what's going on, look, you're not going to learn. People, you hear all these things all the time. You're like, biological warfare. People talk about that all the time. Look at COVID. Look at what COVID has done to the world in the structure from a biological standpoint and a health concern standpoint. Now imagine, truly imagine, this being released on the United States or the world as a true biological weapon. Yeah. Where, you know, people's face is melting off and they're throwing up in the street and going, you know. Stuff like I mean, the scope that people are capable of is only as great as those that are meant to prevent it and their underestimation of somebody's willingness to do it. Wow. That's the way I believe security is structured. Yeah. If you if you are stupid enough to assume that somebody won't do it because it's so vile and so heinous, you are going to be there when it happens with your thumb up your butt because you didn't take the you didn't take the steps. Everything that we've done since 2016 in in the industry, in my opinion, has been reactive. And those those that were in front doing their research, having meetings, having conversations, talking to law enforcement, talking to government officials, and having the insight to be able to get that information from either private entities or government entities, you knew the risk because they have to deal with it every day. They have to talk about it every day. They have to do those what ifs. At some point or another, security is going to have to start thinking the same way.
0: I, I think you're absolutely on to something. And I think, you know, like we were talking about earlier today, Boyd's Loop, right? Boyd's Loop, I mean, being able to observe, orient, decide, and act in a, in a crisis is is probably one of the most, even if it's not an active shooter sure event, but just dealing with, you know, clients on the EP side or dealing with, you know, movements into Mexico or, or Africa being able to assess surroundings and understand, especially as a solo practitioner, right? Moving with a client, moving with a principal, um, that that pays dividends. It pays dividends on your reputation. It pays dividends on the success of the operation. Um, definitely. A couple more questions for you, Chad. What yep. packs do you think? Both a mass casualty event like Stephen Paddock's 2017, you know, shooting and a pandemic have on, you know, a city like Las Vegas built for entertainment?
1: I, well, built for entertainment and, and built on tourism, you know, they're, they're, they're the idea of the safety of flying. There's so many things that, that become so critical to the rebuilding of Las Vegas. You know, it, there's a worldwide footprint of Las Vegas, Where people from all over the world visit that city, sometimes for a week, sometimes for a month, multiple times a year, large convention business. And when you're talking, you're talking hundreds of million dollars a year in convention revenue in that city alone, just between places like the Las Vegas Convention Center, the Sands Expo, and the Mandalay Bay Convention Center. Those three alone are three of the biggest convention centers in the country, if not in the world. And it's a rotating door, a revolving door of businesses. Where those city that city structures itself, and ramps up like you would for a holiday weekend, knowing when some of these conventions are coming in, to have that moment, that that huge financial stimulus taken away for an indefinite amount of time, will be very very difficult, you know. And Las Vegas is going to be the casinos are going to be have to be at the tip of the spear for safety, sanitation social distancing requirements if you're going to get because whichever city ends up getting that down first will be the city where these conventions go and stay until things die down over time same thing with airlines you know right now i was just i mean i just i just flew to las vegas the other day you know for a meeting you know this, this past week and every seat in the middle every middle seat is great for me but every middle seat is empty because of the distancing piece or what goes on 20 people on an airplane you know, I left on a Monday afternoon at 2 p.m., 2.30, whatever it was, 20 people on that plane to Las Vegas. I've gone in and out of Las Vegas I don't know how many times, over 20 years, and you're blessed if there's one empty seat on that plane going into the city. You're lucky if there's one empty
0: seat. And, to
1: and now to see it the way it is, is is shocking. But I think with the shooting, which was such a huge rebound for the city, because that was the, that was the safety, the physical safety concern. How did this guy get in? How was he able to do this? How was he able to structure this? Get all these rounds, get all these weapons, get all this stuff into a hotel. How did somebody not know? How did somebody not report it? So many what ifs and why questions in regard to this whole process that it made people unsure about the security, safety and structure for what was going on in Las Vegas. So they had to ramp it up. I don't think you're going to be in any different situation now because it's large conventions. It's huge concerts. Now it's the NFL. I mean, look at, I mean, to be fair to the city, you had a huge shot in the arm coming with the Raiders coming to Las Vegas and the NFL and the NHL now both having professional sports teams in the city of Las Vegas. And for COVID to fall when it did, leading into football season and go on as long as it has, I mean, that's an $8 billion investment over there with Allegiant Stadium. And the city trying to recover from that investment. And bringing pro sports into the city, and all those things are effective. All those things are affected, and all those things are going to be small little pieces of the puzzle that Las Vegas has to put back together. Because you can't recover that money in that stadium, and so you can figure it out how to put seventy-five thousand people in it with peace of mind. And that's really the thing, right? I can tell you all day long that the sky is blue, but if I can't prove it to you, then what difference does it make?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, one more question for you. So. Yeah and I want to ask this question because I think it's good for folks that want to, that want to know how, how do, how do folks, you know, guys and girls that want to get into this industry? um, What is your advice for them on where to start and, and and how to get into this industry and what to do from a self-development education training um, and, and a starting point. Can you, can you give us some insight in that?
1: If, if you have a long-term goal, let's say, for example, that you, your, your goal, your aspirations, you're in school, you're looking for a part-time job, so you're going to work security because you want to go into law enforcement. If you're an entrepreneur, you know you have a business mind and you're looking to open a security company, security firm similar to what you you know you did yourself coming from the military, have an entrepreneur's mindset, knowing where things are applicable and changeable and, and has your thought processes developed. I would say if you're starting in either one of those situations, first of all, don't start working security just because you need a job. Because that, that, that's not helping you. It's not helping the people that we're dealing with. It's not helping the industry. It's not helping the customer service aspect of what goes on. Don't do anything just to be doing it. And I don't care what that is, security or otherwise. Second, when you if you're serious about security and learning something and being able to apply that to a future law enforcement career or military career or whatever it is that you that you seek, especially if you've come from the military and you're doing security, then while you're being interviewed, ask the guy interviewing you questions. Find out how serious they are about their training. Find out how much training they do. Find out the certifications that they have, that they require, what the shifts are going to be like, and ask for examples of what are the most common things that happen in this particular industry. How do you handle them? What are the most bizarre things and how did you handle that? If you really want to learn something from somebody in the world, no matter what job it is, they need to be able to offer you something to teach. So if you can't, you can't learn anything from anybody that doesn't know anything about what they're talking about. I don't know the first thing about financial advising. So if you sat down at a table for me and you were, you were going to interview with me to give you a job as a financial advisor, I could tell you right now, you're hired because I don't know shit about what to ask you. So, <laughs> sure, I'd hire you. But at the same time, if I'm going to go into an occupation where I'm going to learn something from somebody, and I don't care how old you are, I don't care if you're 20, 25, 30, 45, 55, if you're walking down a path and you're taking a new job, even if it's in an industry that you've been in. I've been in this industry 20 years, and I still learn something from the gentleman at the North Group every single day. I did it earlier today, as a matter of fact. Because, one, don't ever close your mind to the fact that you know everything. But two, if you really want to learn something, actually be sure that you're learning from people that know what they're talking about. If you want to get in the industry and you want to be successful, then make sure you have a mentor that can put you in that path. That's what I would tell everybody because that's what happened to me and my mentor wasn't even a security person. She was an operations officer and she taught me more about the business side of security and how it affects margins and cogs and profitability and all the other things that came along with it that made me a better operator, a better scheduler, had a better understanding of staffing and how those budgets were affected. And it forced me to use the assets that I could afford to use in the most plausible way to be successful and not just dump 50 guys into a room and hope for the best.
0: Yeah. I, I, I will say long live the life of the operator. That's not where it's at. It's, it's, it's definitely on the entrepreneurial side of this business where there's a lot of gratitude you can only go so far as an operator, that's for sure. Um, well, the man, the myth, the legend, Chad Holt. <laughs> I uh, leave you there, but. appreciate your time, and uh, it's always a pleasure hearing you. Yeah, man, thank you. Um, so we appreciate your time. That's all we got for today. Um, tune in for our next podcast, and we look forward to meeting you. If you have any questions, you can reach us at www.tngdefense.com or you can email us at info at Thanks. Have a great day. You've been listening to the North group podcast or security refined by intelligence. If you have questions for us, they can be emailed to info at TNGdefense.com or visit our website at www.tngdefense.com. Don't forget to subscribe and stay safe.